from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome to Trauma ICU Rounds. I am very excited for today's episode. For those of you that follow the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, last week the updated guidelines to reduce venous thromboembolism, or VTE, in trauma patients was released. And this critical decisions algorithm comes to us from the Western Trauma Association, which just happens to be the last meeting that I was fortunate enough to attend in person pre-COVID. This is a really fantastically well-written and well-presented guideline that takes readers through the modern approach to VTE prophylaxis from the time of admission through discharge and tackles some controversial as well as not-so-controversial topics in VTE management from the appropriate initial dose of chemoprophylaxis to management of patient population subsets at risk for bleeding complications such as traumatic brain injury as well as solid organ injuries, as well as the diminishing role of IVC filters in trauma patients. The first author on this paper is Dr. Eric Lay, who is a professor of surgery and the medical director of the surgical ICU at Cedar sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles, California. Eric is the program director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship, and he is extensively published and is the recipient of numerous research grants and funding from organizations like the DOD as well as the AAST. And speaking of the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, a few years back, Eric presented the results of a multi-center prospective observational study of beta blockers in critically ill patients with traumatic brain injury, which... I continue to cite on rounds in the ICU to this day. In addition to studying TBI, the Lay Research Lab, which is affiliated with the Surgery Department, Trauma Program, and Critical Care Medicine at Cedars, also investigates topics related to acute resuscitation, blood product therapies, and all things critical care, including venous thromboembolism, while also performing basic science as well as bench research. I was really excited to be able to catch up with Derek and sit down with him today. Pleasure to be here. I really appreciate that introduction. Before we get started, I really need to acknowledge the, the co-authors and the leadership involved with this project. There was uh, the entire society provided feedback, and there was a number of questions and comments that, that led to what I think is really a, an outstanding um, set of guidelines. But the co-authors on this paper, you know, Carlos Brown, Ernie Moore, Jack Sava, Kim Peck, David Ciasla, Jason Sperry, Ann Rizzo, Nelson Rosen, Karen Brazel, Rosemary Kozar, Kenji Anaba, and Matt Martin, and especially Matt Martin, who was really the leader of these algorithms committee. Um, they really need to be acknowledged, and, and I appreciate all their help. And if I ever say I in this whole podcast, please keep in mind I'm referring to all these co-authors who put in so much time to make this uh, paper and very readable. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. This is truly an all-star cast composed of phenomenal trauma surgeons and leaders in the field. So a little while back, you gave grand rounds, and unfortunately, I couldn't attend. And the topic of those grand rounds was VTE and trauma. And so why is this a problem, maybe for those house staff that are just starting out or haven't done trauma or critical care for a while? Why do we care so much about venous thromboembolism or VTE, whether that be DVT or PE? Yeah, Dennis. So, so I think it is a good idea maybe to just back up and before we jump into these to determine, um, you know, the history leading up to it. And so we sort of think of venous thromboembolism, we think of Virchow's triad and you know, Virchow's triad really came in the 1950s. That's the stasis of blood flow, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability. But if you were to go back into the 1850s and ask Rudolf Virchow, hey, tell me about Virchow's triad, <laughs> he would kind of say what? <laughs> he would say it because he speaks German, but he'd also say it because he had no idea. What he did really do, and he needs to be acknowledged for this, is, is people were dying, especially after trauma, and he described that, that thrombies occur in the veins particularly the extremities. And mm-hmm. then when they become dislodged, they migrate to the pulmonary vasculature. And he published that in 1856 in German. So I think Virchow's triad is a starting point, but we get to the 1960s and I think there was a, a better understanding of clots in trauma patients. For example, there's a British Journal of Surgery paper in 1961 that showed that on autopsy, 65% of trauma patients had a DVT. And on autopsy, 20% of trauma patients had a pulmonary embolism. So you can imagine 
the emphasis we have on VTE today, imagine if we didn't treat it and really didn't know what it was, you would see catastrophe happening. You'd have these successful surgeries and the patients would be dropping dead. Now, mind you, that still occurs today. And, and that's why we were really emphatic about trying to prevent it. And in the 60s, it was really started to be described. Coming up to the 90s, in 1994, there's one of these landmark papers, Geertz. Mm-hmm. And his first paper, the group published the rate of DBT in the 90s of trauma patients. And it sort of matched what was seen in the 60s, that using venography, so 100% of the patients had venography, and DBTs were identified in 58% of those trauma patients. That brings us up to 1996, where the same group actually treated trauma patients with anoxaparin, 30Q12, and heparin sub-Q, 5000Q12. And compared, compared the rate of DVT between the two cohorts, and lo and behold, that the rate of any DVT was 31% in the anoxaparin group and 44% in the heparin sub-Q group. You know, with that in mind, I think that really begins a series of papers that, that set us on our way to um, where we are today with BTE prophylaxis. I would say, though, that in some ways we haven't progressed because... I'm going to call this the Holy Grail paper or the landmark paper by Geertz. This paper they gave without interruption, unless there was a spine surgery where there was only one single preoperative dose, they gave anoxaparin or heparin. They started in all patients within 36 hours. For patients with TBI, so if you had a bad bleed, they would hold it. But if you had a localized petechial hemorrhage, DAI, and so forth, they would actually give the pharmacologic prophylaxis. And they had exclusion for uncontrolled bleeding up to 36 hours. So in some ways, we've actually backpedaled because on my service, I frequently see somebody going to the OR for, you know, humorous fixation and the anoxaparin is held for 24 hours. And that was one of the emphasis for this paper that we were going to be talking about today. Yeah, we experience the same frustrations. And as much as we might like to or want to attribute this problem to other services, in the end, we are the self-proclaimed captains of the ship, and many of these patients are frequently in the ICU. Therefore, we should be intimately involved in all decisions regarding withholding of VTE prophylaxis. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's July, and, and the new intern on the other service will ask for it to be held, and, and the new intern on our service will ask for it to be held, and it'll be stopped. We as attendings need to do a better job making sure that the pharmacologic prophylaxis is continued. So bringing us to 2012, the other papers we frequently talk about are these chess guidelines. Mm-hmm. Now, there's not just one chess guideline. There's a series of these papers, <laughs> right? The antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease, perioperative management of antithrombotic therapy, new antithrombic drugs, diagnosis of DVT, treatment and prevention of HIT, prevention of VTE in orthopedic surgery patients. So all these papers... And we in trauma are sort of a subset in these chest guidelines of prevention of VTE in non-orthopedic surgical patients. So I really feel like we needed a wider breadth of how to manage VTE prophylaxis in trauma patients and other than these 2012 guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And those are pretty dated. And we know by the time these guidelines are published, the data and evidence that they're based on are already kind of out of date. But why don't we start from the beginning? I mean, that takes us to an adult trauma patient who gets admitted following a trauma. When it comes to risk stratification, I mean, so oftentimes when we talk about VTE or PE specifically, uh, people are intimately aware and familiar with the well score for risk stratification. But even before that happens, trying to avoid VTE in our trauma patients, what sort of risk stratification should we be doing? Is this something that we should have on our MD calc ready to plug in for all trauma patients? Uh, It just seems like that might be a little time consuming and it would be simpler just to put everyone on chemical prophylaxis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to agree with that second statement too. In some ways it is almost easier just to have everybody placed on pharmacologic prophylaxis. So I would say these scores, like I think the Greenfield score from 97 Journal of Trauma is, is the sort of the, the end all be all. And, right. and, you know, blood transfusions, operative triumph, pelvic fractures. I do think that these risk stratification scores, they look at patients with moderate to severe trauma. And I think when you're trying to determine which patients do not need pharmacologic prophylaxis, you need a different scoring system. So 
I think the Greenfield score does work. It also has value if you have to determine other things, for example, surveillance duplex, and there's reasons why mm-hmm. you might need that. So those scoring systems have value. I think the uh, Miami group, Kenneth Proctor, also had a simplified version of that scoring that, that was you know, just the, some of those, those items I name, like longer than two-hour operative case, more than four units of blood, and so forth. And I think that's a more simplified version of the Greenfield risk score. You know, as I decide, which ones do you use? Do you, do you use any of those? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think I've gotten a little lazy over the years. I certainly used to apply these sort of criteria pretty rigorously for patients that came in and really would think about those specific patient factors, injury factors, and then iatrogenic factors that might place a patient at a higher risk for VTE. And I know in the algorithm, we've got the low risk and the moderate to high risk. And in the low risk, people who have minimal injury that are walking and maybe will be discharged in the first 24 hours not to give it. The concern I always have is that patient develops a complication, and now it's not going to be a 24-hour stay, but a 48, 72-hour or week-long stay. And then because it hasn't been written for, it doesn't get thought about. And so, yeah, these days I just kind of ask the house staff to, if they're within the walls of the hospital and breathing hospital air, I kind of ask for them to be on chemical prophylaxis. Yeah, Dennis, I think that's absolutely correct. The challenge is mentioned that you really have to figure out which patients do not need chemical right, right. And the test scoring system actually didn't just look at the moderate to severe trauma patients. They also looked at all breaths of trauma. And it was, as you described, that if a patient is has minimal injury and should be discharged in 24 hours, then they don't necessarily need pharmacologic prophylaxis. But there are some issues there. You say, are they ambulating? But suppose they're in restraints. They can ambulate, but they're in restraints because they're intoxicated. Well, that patient should have it. You know, they're supposed to be there for a day and then they're for two or three days. That patient should have it. But the test score really showed that, that those patients who are elderly, obese, or have lower extremity injuries, those are the ones that if two or three of those, if they're not obese, if they're not elderly, if they don't have lower extremity injuries and they have so-called minor injuries, those are the ones that may not require pharmacologic prophylaxis. But I sort of agree with you that when in doubt, go ahead and write for it. Sure. And per the algorithm, the vast majority of injured patients should have mechanical prophylaxis in the form of SCDs placed. And this is supported by the literature, yes? I think that the literature does support mechanical prophylaxis that even with pharmacologic prophylaxis that you may see a decrease in, in DBT, you may see a decrease, decrease in PE. There was a recent New England Journal of Medicine paper that had mechanical prophylaxis in ICU patients and concluded that there was no difference whether you had the leg squeezers or not, but only 6% or something like that was, was trauma patients. So therefore, I'm not applying that to our trauma patients. Sure. But let me just back up to one thing. So this yeah. chest article from 2012. So so I want to say this because there is an other side to everything we say, that, that there's two <laughs> sides to a debate. And, and if somebody says to you, well, I want to not start this patient on pharmacologic prophylaxis. I want to do heparin instead of enoxaparin and so forth. The 2012 guidelines really do say that that in some ways this is correct. I cringe at that, but it's really hard to have a discussion with an orthopedic attending when they refer to the 2012 guidelines. And then mm-hmm. they say, well, look, for major trauma patients, we suggest either anoxaparin or heparin or leg squeezers, <laughs> preferably with the leg squeezers over no prophylaxis. So those are for patients, your general major trauma patients. They don't even recommend anoxaparin over heparin or even either of those at all. So it's it's a bit of a challenge. And then for High-risk VTE, those are spinal cord, TBI, and spine surgery patients, they suggest actually giving these patients either heparin or anoxaparin. So, you know, I I take everything with a grain of salt, and there's no reason to fall on a sword over something like insisting on anoxaparin in a, a spinal cord injury. But the CHESS guidelines do have the other side of that. So everything we run through this discussion, unfortunately, the most recent best guidelines don't really support anoxaparin on every patient um, in the first 24 hours. But I would say, since these guidelines have been written in clinical practice and the supporting literature, everything states that early anoxaparin that's uninterrupted is of the utmost importance. And all it takes is one young man or woman who had some trauma 
dying of a, a pulmonary embolism for you to really, really emphasize these guidelines. Yeah, no, great point. So we're definitely going to talk about interruptions in the administration of VTE pharmacologic prophylaxis, because that's been shown to actually be significantly associated with the risk for VTE complications. But just to kind of close the door on low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin, is it safe to say that in the absence of acute kidney injury or renal failure, whether it be chronic or acute on chronic, that the vast majority of trauma patients should be placed on low molecular weight heparin. Yes, absolutely. Completely agree with that. The You said acute kidney injury. I would say that most trauma patients have some level of acute kidney injury. So I would take it a bit further that, you know, serious acute kidney injury, a creatinine clearance of less than 30. But for those patients who need dialysis or they have a very, very severe case of, of kidney injury with a creatinine clearance of less than 30, otherwise they need to have the enoxaparin. And, and the dosing is, I think it's going to surprise a lot of people what we're recommending on that. So absolutely. There was one paper out of San Diego in 2015, a Western trauma, that it was a non-inferiority paper. It was Michael Seiss and the first, first author was Eric Olson. And I'll give them credit. You know, they wanted to compare instead of Q12 heparin, like the the landmark paper at the beginning of this episode by Geertz, the 99.6 New England Journal of Medicine, they wanted to compare heparin TID. There are all these pockets of trauma centers that believe heparin TID is as good as anoxaparin. Um, and they showed that it might not be non-inferior, but that paper, this 2015 SICE paper, surely was sort of corrected and, and shown that anoxaparin, the doses of 30Q12 or 40 once a day are superior to heparin TID. So, so yes, your statement that heparin is only for patients with renal failure is absolutely correct and really get out of the habit of giving heparin if at all possible. And so, Eric, as I look at your algorithm, which I have right in front of me, if our patient doesn't have a TBI, spinal cord injury, and they're between the ages of 18 to 65, we're going to initiate them on anoxaparin 40 milligrams Q12H versus 30 milligrams Q12H, which we know is still oftentimes not enough, at least as defined by anti-10A levels. So my questions for you are, how did you decide upon this fixed dose and why not go with a weight-based dosing strategy? Yes. So just to be clear that most patients by this algorithm are suggested to be on 40Q12. The idea is that, you know, select patients, and they're very few, those with acute bleeds, TBI, or spinal cord injury, you might have to have a delay. But when you get down to starting, starting your pharmacologic prophylaxis, what dose should you give? And the reality is that patients who are older than 65 years or low weight, TBI, pregnancy, and low creatinine clearance, they can be started on 30Q12, but most patients that you see in your trauma center, those patients should be started on 40Q12. Now, why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of literature to show that that 30Q12 was based on early attempts at quantifying the need for anoxaparin, and and a lot of those were based on the anti-10A levels. But the idea that a trauma patient who's 60 with, you know, a low normal creatinine clearance who's weighs 90 pounds soaking wet compared to your 200-pound 20-year-old trauma patient who has a hyperdynamic creatinine clearance, the idea that both of those patients should be getting 30Q12 is just, it's flatly incorrect, that not all trauma patients should be getting the same dose. And so how do you gauge what dose they should be getting? And you mentioned weight-based dosing, and then I just mentioned the anti-10A level dosing. And so I'll have to say, it'd be a little immodest, that our group put out a paper that showed by anti-10A levels that 80-plus percent of trauma patients needed more than 50Q12. A very small, actually 17% needed 30, and nobody actually needed less than that in this paper. So what we did, we sort of looked back and we said, well, how can we guess without anti-tenant levels which patients need 30? And we sort of went through that. And surprisingly enough, other individuals have shown that this is true with the exact same spectrum. 80 plus percent or more of trauma patients need 40Q12 for pharmacologic prophylaxis, but some need 50Q12, 60Q12, 70Q12. And that's for prophylaxic dosing. And that's been shown in burn patients. That's been shown in other trauma patients. 
It's also been shown in non-trauma patients like gynoc patients and other oncologic procedures. So I think the trend is going to be across the board in the next five years, if we're still giving anoxaparin, that we're going to be seeing most patients started on 40Q12 for pharmacologic prophylaxis. Okay, so per the guidelines, we're going to give 40Q12. I guess getting back to the question of weight-based dosing, why not just start the patient on half a milligram per kg and then move on from there? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, your training ground, um, UCSD, provided a lot of guidance on how to do weight-based dosing. I like the way they took on this project. Instead of saying our way of doing weight-based dosing is the correct way, they looked at all different ways and then they said which way would be the correct way, which way would have the best percent within target range, percent above target range, percent below target range. So um, this was uh, Rao Coimbra and, and Todd Constantini and Allison Bernstein. They did a great paper that really looked at well, let's say we give everybody 30Q12. And as it turns out, only 35% of the patients are within the target range. So let's just say we give 40, everybody 40Q12. Well, 45% of the patients are within the target range. I would point out that if they used a variable method of giving 30, 40, and then going by anti-10A levels, they might have gotten a better dosing algorithm. That wasn't actually part of this paper. But back to the weight-based dosing, they looked at some centers will give patients... 0.5 mg per kg. So let's say you have a, a very large person who weighs 200 kilograms. Well, that, per these guidelines, could get as much as, what was that, uh, 100 Q12. That's yeah. a pretty big, big dose. Yeah. Big whopping people. Yeah. And that does bring up a good point that the primary excretion of anoxaparin is through the kidneys. And then you have this distribution that occurs with larger masses, but that's really going to only be affected by the initial dosing. But then you have this thing with anoxaparin about bioavailability, where it's going to bind to factors throughout the blood. And so you're going to need to give increased dosing for a lot of reasons in obese patients. And we're disregarding that there's also hereditary coagulopathies that could occur in some of these patients. But um, so, so back to this paper out of UCSD, they actually said, okay, what about if we do variable dosing and we say we're going to do fixed dosing and so we'll do a subset of, of what patients receive. So they're going to start some patients 50 to 60 kilograms on 30, 61 to 91 on 40, and greater than 100 kilograms, they're going to go to 50 Q12 and not that really large dosing. And they found that the target ranges were the best with these fixed dosing, that they'd have this variable dosing that's weight-based, but they also have a cap on it. And it seems like a very reasonable way to go about it, especially since you don't have to measure the anti-10A levels. I believe they do there now, but I think that some centers who are resistant to measuring anti-10A levels could go back and look at this paper and say, hey, this works really well for us. Lower weight individuals, 50 to 60 kilograms, 30, 61 to 99, that's most of your patients, 40. And then really larger patients will give 50 Q12. So yeah, props to them. They did a good job with that, looking at, at their data and other individuals' data. So Eric, on the topic of anti-10A monitoring, as you mentioned, some centers may or may not be doing this, and we certainly do this here, whether you want to look at the peak or trough level, is there data to support anti-10A monitoring and dose adjustment of your anoxaparin therapy in terms of decreasing the incidence of VTE? Yeah, so our JAMA surgery paper showed that, and not long after that, a journal of trauma paper showed it, and then there's been a few other papers, uh, Burns and others have shown it. Interestingly enough, many other individuals in trauma centers have shown that 30Q12 anoxaparin doesn't get your peak or trough anti 10 levels to where they need to be. And then some have even shown that based on that, that there's such variability that the peak or trough anti 10 level dosing makes no difference. Nobody has shown that it makes things worse. So, you know, with that in mind, I think it's certainly something to consider, especially as patients have increased weight or higher creatinine clearance. You really need to check an anti 10 level. We've never seen any paper that's shown anti 10 level based dosing has led to higher bleeding, uh, more red blood cell transfusions, drops in hemoglobin. So it's very comparable in the right patients to, to 30Q12. So switching gears a little bit, Eric, I think earlier we kind of alluded to the concept or notion that missing a dose of Lovenox or multiple doses of VTE prophylaxis may actually have an even greater impact 
on the risk or development for VTE than the potential initial or starting dose. Can you elaborate for us and our listeners, what is the impact of missed dosing on the development of VTE in trauma patients? So I think Marty Schreiber's group um, in Oregon looked at how a missed dose or a missed two doses or a missed four doses increased the rate of VTE. And the paper that I'm referring to, they actually showed that if you miss one dose, there wasn't a significant increase. But if you miss two to four, there was about an 800% increase in VTE. So it's absolutely dramatic. If you miss, you know, three or four doses of pharmacologic prophylaxis, then you're going to have a much higher rate in your VTE. So very disappointing, something to absolutely avoid. It's, it's sort of a real balance from being dogmatic and saying we absolutely have to give the anoxaparin to, you know, allowing that it's going to happen. But boy, I wish we could just set it in stone. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why people will hold pharmacologic prophylaxis. The patient was in CT, you know, we dose it at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. So if the patient's in CT, then they won't get it. Well, you can give it before or after. There's not this hard, fast rule. It has to be 10 p.m. Or, or the hemoglobin drops, you know, a drop by, you know, from nine to eight. And there's this, oh my gosh. But the reality is, is that after the initial resuscitation, um, which is usually done in the first 24 hours, patients go from a hypocoagulable state to a hypercoagulable state, this trauma-induced uh, coagulopathy. And if you miss those early doses, or if you skip these doses because of hemoglobin drop, you're absolutely going to increase your VTE rate. So understanding what are reasons to hold pharmacologic prophylaxis, and there are very few, you know, I mean, if you have a TBI and you have a follow-up CT that shows progression of bleed, hold the pharmacologic prophylaxis. If you have a TBI and the follow-up CT is stable, absolutely give it. And what's more I'll say is, and this has been shown, that, that if you have a CT head that's stable after the first one, you have about a 10% chance of having progression on the next CT. Now, the problem with pharmacologic prophylaxis is that if you ever give an oxaparin, you expect perfection. You're never going to have progression, but it's going to progress 10% of the time whether you gave an oxaparin or not. So you have these sort of nuances where people will hold it and then they'll push back and say, look, that patient had a, a an increase in their head bleed. Well, no, that's what the rate is whether you give it or not. So yeah. So just back to the point, yeah, absolutely try to give it. I, I need to emphasize that to everybody. One of the major focuses of this paper is do not interrupt your pharmacologic prophylaxis. Great. And then in terms of timing of initiation, like you mentioned, we're going to start it within the first 24 hours. And then there will be a subset of patients like TBI, where we might consider holding it. But I think the key take-home point that you're emphasizing here is that once that second head CT is shown to be stable, initiate your pharmacologic prophylaxis. What do we do with patients with solid organ injuries? Uh, So liver, spleen, kidney. It seems like more and more we're getting aggressive about getting the VT prophylaxis going. Any words of wisdom for that particular patient subset? Yeah, sure, sure. So the uh, USC group had a recent paper on this. And I think, did did I see one by your group, Um, solid organ injury, that really showed that you can give, it is safe to give. So grade one, two, or three spleen or liver injury absolutely, you can give it within the first 24 hours. We had some discussion about grade four and five, and those are the ones that that you might want to hold it for, you know, 48 hours or until you have, you're sure that you have a stable hemoglobin or the patient's gone to IR, you've definitively managed it. Why don't you tell me what you do with it? We do the usual thing. We trend the hemoglobins. We perform our serial physical exams for whatever that's worth. And we try to get really aggressive. So even among patients with grade four or five injuries, if they're stable for 24 hours with no concerns for ongoing bleeding, and especially if they've undergone some sort of angioembolization procedure to really kind of help stop the bleed, then we'll initiate our pharmacologic prophylaxis at that point. I think some of us might be a little bit gun shy, maybe start with a 30 and then go from there. But yeah, we definitely don't want to be holding VT prophylaxis in those patients. And we also like to get them up and mobilizing as soon as possible. Long gone are the days that we would wait for five days for the grade five injury to get them up and moving. Yeah, that's excellent management. I, I absolutely agree with that, that. Try to get it on as early as possible. It is safe. You know, trending hemoglobin, That you really have to expand on what a drop in hemoglobin is. So if, if the patient is heart rate of 70 and blood pressure 120, I, I'm not concerned about the hemoglobin dropping from 10 to 7, you know, or 10 to 8, I should say. 
I think that's a very safe scenario to continue pharmacologic prophylaxis. But if a patient's heart rate's 120 and their blood pressure's 90, and hemoglobin drops by one, yeah, you might be a little more concerned. Another patient population that seems to be at high risk and in whom we oftentimes get into conversations with anesthesia about are those patients that have or may benefit from an epidural catheter. And so what are you doing at your shop and how did you kind of look at this when it came to the guidelines regarding holding VTE prophylaxis in patients who require an epidural to be placed or removed? So epidurals are now associated with a higher VTE rate. So so this is an interesting comment. So previously the thinking was, hey, I'm going to place an epidural in my patient with all these rib fractures and they're going to be mobile. And then because they're mobile, the VTE rate's going to go down. In fact, what's happening now is that the VTE rate's going up. And so why is that? Well, we're having a lot of, of new challenges with dosing anoxaparin in patients with epidurals in. So, so for example, so we dose our anoxaparin at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. And it's important that you know that. So if a patient gets to the floor at 11 a.m., they're not going to get that 10 a.m. anoxaparin dose unless somebody steps in and wants to get it. So let's say the plan was to put an epidural in the morning after it was requested. So we hold the anoxaparin the night before, and then we hold the anoxaparin the morning of, and then (laughs) that epidural isn't placed, but it's going to be placed the next morning. Right. And then that evening dose is held, and then the next morning dose is held. So we need to go back to what the anesthesia guidelines say about anoxaparin and epidurals. And it's really important that this is understood because this is from the people who are placing the epidurals in. You need to hold the anoxaparin for 12 hours. So if you're placing your epidural in the morning, let's say at 10 a.m., you don't have to hold that previous 10 p.m. dose. You only have to hold that morning dose. So request the epidural at you know 3 p.m. the prior day. Don't hold that evening dose. The morning you hold that 10 a.m. dose. Now, if they come around at 6 a.m., you can't place the epidural. So you need to coordinate with everybody. Right. So you need to have that 12-hour gap, 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. So so you hold that 10 a.m. dose. And then the European and the American societies differ on how much timing you need to hold the anoxaparin after the epidural is placed. It's between four and 12 hours. I bring that up because if you place the epidural in right at 10 a.m., it doesn't really matter because the next dose is at 12 hours later. But I would say that if you place the epidural in at 10 a.m., 11 a.m., noon, 1 p.m., you have the the minimum of four hours before the next dose. You really don't need to hold the anoxaparin for more than that morning dose. I've also seen at Cedar sinai this increased pressure because we're giving higher doses based on anti-10A levels, 40Q12, 50Q12. And with that in mind, there's this uh, resistance to, to placing the epidural. And so we work through this because these guidelines also have guidance for what the anoxaparin needs to be held or when it needs to be held for therapeutic doses of anoxaparin. So let's say a patient has a clot and you're giving them anoxaparin for that clot. So in general, you're going to give, let's say, 80Q12 or something. Big doses for, for smaller people. Well, the guidelines are for 24 hours to be hold and then between 4 to 12 hours after placement or removal. So If you hold the evening dose at 10 p.m. and you hold the 10 a.m. dose and you place the epidural at 10 a.m., that's 24 hours since the 10 a.m. dose the prior day. And you can absolutely give therapeutic doses of anoxaparin and place epidurals. So I just said, hey, if you guys want to treat our anti-10A level doses as higher level and you want to hold that prior 10 p.m. dose, let's just do that. At times, we're able to do that and continue our... 40Q12 dosing, even 30Q12 dosing is, is a point of contention. Oftentimes, this pain specialist will insist on, on once-a-day dosing. But I think we're working through this, and, and the answer is we really need to give it uninterrupted um, and as frequently as possible. And we're just holding the 10 a.m. dose now if we coordinate. If there's resistance, we'll hold the 10 p.m., the prior night dose, and we'll get a 24-hour gap between placement or removal. And then that 4- to 12-hour gap after placement or removal even if you're giving therapeutic, is just fine per the society. Yeah, great. That's a very good summary. And for the these epidurals, are you mainly placing these in patients with multiple rib fractures, flailed chests, or more for perioperative analgesia management? 
Yeah, and I think that there's been some change in the last few years of this. I think an epidural is a sign of uh, quality at a trauma center, that the higher number of patients with rib fractures who get epidurals is a sign of success, a sign of better pain control. At times, we'll place them for patients who have severe pain after surgery, but we're doing more nerve blocks. Yeah, every 12 hours as needed, you know, they're not as invasive and, and we're getting around this resistance to appropriate dosing of pharmacologic prophylaxis. So how are you guys doing that? Yeah, you know, it kind of varies from provider to provider and who's on the acute pain service, but we've really tried to move towards more multimodal and multi-analgesic therapies. So the use of ketamine infusions, the use of serratus anterior blocks starting very early, even in the emergency room. And so I think we're finding that despite how helpful thoracic epidurals are, that we're not needing them as much these days. I think we're getting a better handle on how to really manage analgesia in these patients. One of the uh, topics that I haven't seen in a while is the notion of primary pulmonary thrombosis. This is something that Velma Hose and his group wrote about, or at least there was a couple of papers on this. And the whole idea here is that there's going to be patients that come in with a primary pulmonary thromboembolus, so not something that's kind of fragmenting off from the deep iliac veins or the femoral veins and then traveling to the lungs to cause a problem. Is that something that you've seen or something that people are talking about? Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Dr. Velmaho, so I'm going to have to tangent a bit, but he was really terrific when he was at USC. We had Demetriotis, Velmahos, Re, Salim, uh, later Inaba came, yeah, just these yeah. terrific surgeons. And Velmahos, we should acknowledge that he was in Boston during the Boston... Um, bombing, that they had such a terrific zero mortality of all the patients who made it alive to the um, trauma centers. So they really did a terrific job. He's been one of the leaders in, in you know, where do these PEs come from? And um, Dr. Velma Hose had this idea that, you know, they're not necessarily coming from the, the bilateral lower extremities. They could be primarily from the SVC or the atria, and they could generate there. So I've seen the residents sometimes order a duplex to rule out PE, and, and that, that Velma host, you know, conjecture always comes to play there. Well, no, that's <laughs> right. not going to rule it out at all, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so, so yes, yeah, certainly a topical conversation. I would say that, that maybe about 10 years ago, I was at Maddox Lecture, and there was this real frustration that that we've never seen a drop in PEs. After all these decades of trying to make PEs go down, we've never seen a drop. But we are now. We are seeing a decrease in the rate of PEs. It's not because we're placing filters. IVC filters are being phased out. But but it's, I think, I believe, because we're doing a better job with our pharmacologic prophylaxis. We really are trying to initiate it early give it uninterrupted, start it at a higher dose, and then dose it by anti-10A levels to see which patients need an even higher dose. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It really does seem like the, the needle is moving on this particular complication. Now, Dr. Lay, you mentioned IVC filters, and there was a time when it seemed like these were going in every patient that was admitted at least to the ICU with polytrauma, and then thinking about the whole idea of interruption. So let's say we've got a patient who's got a severe pelvic spash, you know, they've got an LC3 or APC3 fracture, uh, they're at high risk for bleeding, but they're also at a high risk for VTE. If our orthopods want us to hold that prophylaxis prior to surgery and we know they're going to be on the table for a prolonged period of time with the potential for significant blood loss, should we or would you ever put an IVC filter into any of these patients? And what are the indications these days for IVC filters? Yeah, that's a terrific question. And there's been some change in the needle here. The pendulum has gone from you know, back when I was training in the early 2000s of, of absolutely putting a filter in that patient to no longer doing that. So let's talk about this patient scenario you just described. Uh, major trauma and, and somebody who has a high risk for VTE and they're not getting pharmacologic prophylaxis. Let's just say they're not getting it all. Okay. Should those patients get a filter or not? And this was the exact question of a recent New England Journal of Medicine article. And, and they really looked at, tried to really, really narrow it down to this patient population. And this is, this is prophylactic filters. So no clot's been identified. Right, right. Prophylactic filters in patients who are major trauma and they're not on pharmacologic prophylaxis. 
and, and the filters were placed early in the first 72 hours, and indeed, there was no difference in the rate of symptomatic pulmonary embolisms or death from any causes. So it was um, the control group was 14.4%, the vena cava filter group was 13.9%. So no, no, we're, we're not placing early prophylactic filters. And then you asked, which group would I put a filter in? So I think this has varied even the last few years, but per our guidelines, those patients who have a PE or they have a proximal clot, like a femoral clot as opposed to like a popliteal clot, Mm -hmm. those patients with a proximal clot and a PE, and then they cannot be started on full anticoagulation. So you can't give heparin for IV because of a TBI or something. Those are the patients who should have a filter. You do get into this scenario, and I'm going to bump this back to you, Dennis. What do you do with somebody who they have a clot, they're on heparin, but now they're going to go to the OR to get their pelvis fixed, and it's going to be an 8 to 12-hour case. So so what do you do in that scenario? Is there a right answer? What would you do? Yeah, I mean, I think around here, that might be the only time where we would consider putting in a filter. So if a patient, again, just to clarify, so really when it comes to IVC filters and the use of them prophylactically, that's not a thing in this day and age. However, if a patient has established uh, PE or proximal thrombosis and there's a contraindication to full anticoagulation, I think the most of us in our group would put in a filter after a discussion with the operating attending as well as the patient, their family. And again, this would be a retrievable filter that we would ideally get out prior to discharge from hospital because we know we lose so many of our patients to, to follow up. And these things do have complications, mechanical complications. They can migrate, flip, tip, do all kinds of things. Yeah. And I agree with that conclusion. I would just say that it creates another curveball for us. What we're saying (laughs) is that any patient who has a clot, even if they're on IV heparin, if they ever go to surgery, then we're really considering those patients for filters. And I struggle with that because I don't want to have to put a filter in every patient who has a clot. Agreed, agreed. Now, one of the big contentions is that if you're not looking for VTE complications, you're not going to find them. And in places like ours, we're really kind of uh, resource limited in terms of our ability to do surveillance, whereas down in San Diego, you know, day one, day three, and then weekly thereafter, our trauma patients were getting screening duplexes. Uh, What are you doing and what are the current recommendations in terms of surveillance? Well, when I came to Cedars-Sinai, it was Monday was ultrasound day. So I think that's that's certainly um, changed um, by the 2012 chest guidelines, which say surveillance duplex is not indicated. I would say, though, that there are subsets of patients who probably should have serial duplex. And and those are, you know, your, your ICU major trauma patients. And the Miami group actually showed in that subset of patients, if you do surveillance duplex, you'll actually decrease your rate of PE. Right. So, so if, if you don't, you'll have a smaller DBT rate, but your PE rate will actually be higher. So finding these patients with clots is important. We don't go that far, but if I'm not happy with the dosing of the pharmacologic prophylaxis, I'll just, in a patient in the ICU with major trauma, I'll go ahead and order that duplex to see if they have a clot to get them down that pathway earlier. I would also say that per our Western Trauma Association guidelines, there was some discussion on the back end about the value of knowing if a patient has a proximal clot. It is real. You know, they could be a chronic clot. And these are patients with with minor trauma. So, and so not those ICU trauma patients, but the ones with, you know, a, you know, a, a fractured uh, tibia. If you find a clot there and it's chronic or acute, you can get that patient treated. And, and these clots have long-term pain and venous insufficiency and related challenges. Now, our guidelines do not say that, that everybody should get surveillance duplex, but I do understand that some people are doing that for all trauma patients, minor or severe trauma. So um, I don't think we're going to get to the end of this until we remove DVTs as a sign of excellence in trauma centers. So, so I think trauma centers are a little res- resistance because if they have a high DVT rate, then they're going to say, per their judgment, that they're not doing as good a job as the other centers who are not checking for DVTs on ultrasound. So there's a lot going on with this, and, and I think that the answer would really be 
maybe scan those patients with major trauma in the ICU, especially if they're missing doses of pharmacologic prophylaxis. Right. And I know we didn't touch upon it in the guidelines, but are you using CT venography or are you just sticking with duplex, compression duplex? I think whenever you get a CT for a PE, you should request the venous phase. It should just be a one shot and you get that venous runoff. Absolutely. If I see on a CT that there's a clot there, I'll I'll use that in my um, clinical practice. But no, I've never specifically ordered a CT just for a clot in a patient. How about you? Do you ever? No, no. But I think the point that you just made is a really good one. If you're concerned and you're going to get a CTPE protocol, just hang around for the delayed phase and then take a run through uh, the venous system. Okay, so having talked about uh, screening, I guess eventually we're going to get our patients discharged from hospital. And so when it comes to the need for ongoing VTE prophylaxis uh, post-discharge, any recommendations from the group in terms of who and for how long? Yeah, so it's been well shown in the orthopedic literature that patients should be on discharge prophylaxis. So which trauma patients, it's again, this major trauma, I would say pelvic fractures, TBI, spine trauma, spine surgery, any major abdominal surgery, they should have discharge pharmacologic prophylaxis. I would say the literature is not great here. What we do know is that anoxaparin at discharge is not well liked or tolerated or even funded by the insurance company. So there's all these challenges. I would step back instead of saying, instead of giving 40 Q12, we should probably bring it down to 30 Q12. And I also say that that aspirin has been shown to be great right. for discharge prophylaxis. For sure, for sure. And you can imagine, especially in older trauma patients, if there's no major risk factors and there could be some underlying coronary artery disease, I mean, a little baby aspirin daily probably won't hurt. Yeah, there's a specific uh, population that, that's going to benefit from that. And one way to tell is to have a, a TIG with platelet mapping. And, and if you do that in any time during the hospital stay, you'll find that sometimes the the coagulopathy is due to platelet function, poor platelet function. And so aspirin does have a role in every stage and especially at discharge. And I think if somebody was to debate this with me, they'd say, well, anoxaparin's better, but I would say, you know, aspirin's oral, it's well tolerated. The insurance companies aren't going to fund that anoxaparin. So we need to have something. Apixaban and rivaroxaban are are two terrific drugs on these anti-10A inhibitors. And, you know, if I was to guess the direction we're going, if I was to be the, the lord of all VTE prophylaxis, I would give most patients a shot of anoxaparin in the ED. And then for the next 48 hours, I would keep it on anoxaparin. And then I would have an oral drug like apixaban or rivaroxaban. And I would continue that through discharge. But the cost of these drugs is important. The reversal agents are extremely expensive. So, you know, the future is, is for the next generation to figure out. So we're, we're still working at the 2020 guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And certainly the role of the uh, direct oral anticoagulants have uh, fairly good data uh, behind them, especially following elective isolated orthopedic surgery. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's the elective isolated orthopedic literature that really is a driving force. I think the Arizona group published some retrospective literature and others have published that too, that, that there might be a role in trauma. The, the trick is, you know, if you have a splenic lack and you give rivaroxaban and then the patient bleeds, even if it's not related to the rivaroxaban, you're going to give a reversal agent that's just enormously expensive and it just creates all these challenges. It's just $10,000. No, no big deal. <laughs> so you had mentioned TEG and Rotem. And so what's the current state of using thrombolastography to guide our DVT or VTE uh, chemical prophylaxis? Are we there yet or are we still kind of too early for that? Yeah, you know, I think Marty Schreiber's group did a terrific job studying this and and they published a negative study. I think it was JAMA surgery. And it really showed that trying to dose anoxaparin by TAG didn't make a difference in the VTE. So more to answer your question. So when do you use this? I think that if you're trying to determine if a coagulopathy is there and it's due to platelet function, as we just discussed, there is a role for TAG with platelet mapping. We don't do that at Cedars-Sinai. I know the Denver group does, and they're really the leaders in this discussion. I think that going forward, you can imagine that there's going to be some quick TAG or otherwise it's going to be helpful for dosing. But right now, we can't really say to, you know, you should order a TAG to help guide your dosing. So we've gone through 
quite a bit today and actually have pretty much gone through the entire algorithm. So Dr. Lay, if there are a couple of take-home points or real clinical pearls for our new house staff that have just started out uh, in the hospital in their residency training, what are some key take-home points from these guidelines? Well, you know, this is almost a daily debate on our services and, and we're heavily involved with this. So first take a deep breath and, and realize that the CHESS guidelines, which up until ours are out, which will probably be November, they're, they're on PubMed now and it is open access. So you should be able to pull that down at any time. But don't get in an argument over, you know, whether you should be giving heparin at 30 or heparin at 40. But, but your take-home points really are that most patients require early uninterrupted, and higher doses of anoxaparin. It's just irrefutable that you're going to save lives if you do that throughout your trauma center, throughout your career. Really try to get the anoxaparin on in the first 24 hours. Avoid using heparin unless it's for renal failure. Really try to get most patients on higher doses of anoxaparin, 40Q12. This 30Q12 is now outdated. And have some means of deciding which patients require even higher than that. There are reasons when to hold the therapy or when to delay the start of it, but those are few or far between. The absolute clinical practice and literature supports earlier, uninterrupted, and higher doses of anoxaparin. Fantastic. That's a great summary. Well, listen, Dr. Lay, I want to really thank you for uh, coming and, and sitting down with me in my office today. We try to do this remotely, and that didn't work out. So thank you. I know it's the long weekend, and you've got family obligations. But I really feel that these are important guidelines. I have no doubt that these are going to be referenced pretty extensively in the near future. And so anything else you want to add before we part ways today? Yeah, these podcasts are really terrific, and, and you've been calling me Dr. Lay, and I've been saying Dennis, so I apologize for that. So it's Dr. <laughs> no. Kim. I really enjoy your podcast. And, uh, and I would say that, that this is an area that everybody could collaborate on. I was not that interested in BT prophylaxis as a resident, but increasingly I see it as an area that needs a lot of work and a lot of improvement. So I'm sure there's individuals out there who want to collaborate, and we at the Western Trauma Association, or even myself, would love to hear from you. I'm easy to figure out how to get a hold of on the net. So I look forward to working with all those individuals who are going into trauma down the road. Yeah, and in the show notes, we will leave a link to the Western Trauma Association website. Please do check out that website. There are some great algorithms as well as guidelines that are constantly being updated. In addition, there is a multi-institutional trial study collaborative. And so please check out what current studies are underway and feel free to join and get involved. Once again, thanks to Dr. Eric Leah for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. If you like what you're hearing, please do subscribe, rate, and comment. You can do that at Apple iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of one another, and we will talk soon. 